Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Kathleen Porter-McGee of the Partnership Schools, a network of Catholic schools in New York City and Cleveland, joins us to discuss the debate over religious charter schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a Virginia study that compares labor market outcomes between community college students from higher and lower socioeconomic backgrounds. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. They always go together. Harlem, the South Bronx, and... Oh, I mean, they're so close, so it makes perfect sense. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Kathleen Porter-McGee. Kathleen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. Uh, It's great to have you back. Uh, Kathleen has, of course, been on the show before. She has also done two tours of duty at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and currently is a superintendent of the Partnership Schools, which is a network of urban Catholic schools in Harlem, the South Bronx and Cleveland. You know, those three locations, they always go together. Harlem, the South Bronx and Cleveland. Oh, I mean, they're so close. So it makes perfect sense. You can understand. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, uh, it's great to have you on. And your role... uh, Leading these Catholic schools is one of the big reasons we have you here today. Uh, The other reason is that you wrote a recent article for Fordham about religious charter schools. And now people may assume that as somebody who runs Catholic schools, you would be excited that perhaps charter school systems will be required by the courts to include religious schools if they want to be included. This could be a great new source of revenue for Catholic schools. And yet you're nervous, uh, shall we say. So let's talk about that on. Ed Reform Update. All right, Kathleen. So, yeah, especially in New York City, where there is, of course, no private school choice program. Ohio, Cleveland does have actually several of those. Uh, You know, people might think, oh, you would love this idea of Catholic charter schools. Your schools could become charter schools and they could get Boku bucks and, and really have financial sustainability. What's wrong with that? Nothing in theory, uh, but I've got, I'm a pragmatist at heart. And so I've got two concerns about how this would actually play out. So I think one concern is kind of the religious liberty side. So I think one question, maybe this is more of a question than a concern, but one question I have is like, are there challenges? Are there things that we would have to give up as faith-based schools in order to, to run what we've historically considered public charter schools? And and would that start to threaten our ability to teach the faith and live out the faith authentically in our schools? So that's a question um, that I have and an open question. The second one is kind of like a pragmatic, what actually happens if we start going down this religious charter school path? And I guess, let me say that like, from like the, con- I'm going to be out of my depth constitutionally, so I won't talk about this for very long, but constitutionally, I understand and think I agree with the argument. So like if some nonprofits are allowed by law to run charter schools, it does seem discriminatory to prevent religious organizations from running charter schools as well. So I completely understand the constitutional argument, but just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean we should do something. And my worry in New York, my strongest worry in New York, is that if we say to the state of New York, if you're going to run charter schools, you must allow religious organizations 
to run charter schools in your state. New York will say, okay, fantastic. We just won't allow any charter schools. And so rather than expand charters to include religious schools, I worry it will kill charter expansion in New York. Yep. Yep. No, I think that that is one likely outcome. And of course, not just New York, but in California and uh, any deep blue state out there, which there are quite a few. And uh and again, you know, these are the places where we don't have private school choice because of the politics. The places where we do have private school choice, the red states, you could argue, well, we don't really need religious charter schools, right? Uh, you don't get into all this tangle. And what we don't know, and, and let, let's back up. I mean, this is all being driven by the courts, really. I don't know of any place where somebody has proposed legislatively to create religious charter schools. The idea all along has been that that would not be allowed because charter schools are public schools and public schools aren't allowed to teach religion. Right. And there are some court cases about that piece of this as well that are basically getting at this question. Are charter schools actually under the law public schools? And and that means do they actually operate with a lot of government oversight? If they don't, then at least legally, they might actually be private schools, regardless of what we advocates call them. Right. But then this this other issue around, you know, right, that we don't want to discriminate against religious nonprofits. This comes from this line of cases where, you know, a state is going to have a, a program to repave playgrounds or, you know, make playgrounds safer and uh, said, well, you can't apply if you're a religious nonprofit. And then they sued and said, that's unfair. OK, same thing when it comes to voucher programs. This came out of New England. If you're going to have a tuitioning program for private schools, to allow kids to go to private schools because you don't have a high school in your town, you can't exclude the religious schools, right? That's uh, against the, the the free expression clause of the Constitution. That's what the court's been saying. And so they might go to this next step. And as you say, uh, mandate that states that allow uh, charter schools to allow religious charter schools. Those states, though, as you say, they might back out of chartering altogether, or they might just put a lot of poison pills in that would make it very unappealing for religious schools to participate as a charter school, right? Yep. Well, and I think it's really interesting, too, because I think to that point, so the, the case that's winding its way through the courts right now that is raising the question of whether charter management organizations are or charter schools are private schools or public schools is actually, isn't it the North Carolina case? And if the, and I find this fascinating and it raises the question of like, what is the coalition for religious charter schools and does there exist one? Because I think up until now, most choice supporters who support both charter schools and public school, excuse me, private school choice have sort of like agreed that charter schools are public schools. I mean, it's like the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Like people, advocates for charter schools have been trying to get people to call them public charter schools intentionally for years. And so if this case is decided in the other direction, like what is that going to do to our choice coalition. And I, again, I do worry about it. And I think, you know, it's been, I think Mina Reese has said, like, she thinks that, you know, as, as the head of, of that organization, like she believes that charter schools are public schools. I'm sure that is the case for lots of charter advocates, particularly in blue states like New York. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, is there actually a coalition beyond like Catholics who are really trying to push in earnest for religious charter schools. Yeah. And of course, what's tricky is that this is to a large degree out of our hands. I mean, this is this is not something where 
uh, advocates can get around and say, well, should we advocate for this or not? You know, the, the courts are going to do what the courts are going to do. And it could create some of these political problems. Now, And then what do we do? So like, let's say the court says, OK, they are private schools. Charter schools are private schools. So you have to allow religious schools. Do you then, I guess where advocates come in or like where coalition be, be, building becomes important is like, do we then encourage, you know, organizations like mine or diocese to start applying on mass? So like, right, if we look in New York, we know. And this is something we're grappling with organizationally, because the question I don't want to leave on the table, the question of sustainability, like it is real. So we run schools, as you said, in New York and in Ohio. In Ohio, we have access to, you know, publicly funded scholarships. In New York, we do not. So we get almost no money from the state or from the feds to run our schools. And the students that we serve come from families who absolutely cannot afford tuition, which means we have to fundraise a significant, even though we we run schools for a third of the cost of the traditional public schools, we have to fundraise a significant amount every year just to keep our lights on. So the sustainability question is, is real. There is absolutely no question. But do we, if the, if the court decides that charter schools are private schools and they have to allow religious, do we encourage dioceses to just like flood the market and try to apply for the charters? Like in New York, we've got those 14 zombie charters. Should we apply for one? Should we try to get access to that school? And if we do, what does that do to the likelihood of charter expansion? And that's where I think the advocacy comes in. Like, what does that do to the likelihood of charter expansion in New York? And I think it's, I think it's uh, an open question. And you can imagine that the charter school advocates in a place like New York begging the Catholic schools and other religious schools, just please don't do this. It's going to make life impossible for us. And as you say, if the, you know, if there's this possibility that they just pull the plug entirely on chartering, that would be a huge loss. I also wonder, I guess the last thing I'll say is like, are, are like, and again, I know it feels like an impossibility in a place like New York. Like, I get that. But like, are we reaching such a tipping point for um, private school choice? Like, are we quitting at the tipping point? So are we quitting right at the point where you might actually get some movement to, to push private school choice where even states like New York and California won't be able to resist anymore? Um, and I, I feel like there's reason to be optimistic. I'm not naive, but optimistic that if you, you know, if things continue to move at the rate they are across the country, you will get to the point where it is harder and harder for even a New York to, to hold out. All right. Well, we will need to leave it there. But well said. Kathleen Porter-McGee, again, of the Partnership Schools, a great organization that does have to raise a ton of money every year. So people who uh, really care about urban Catholic schools, they should go to the Partnership Schools website and consider donating. Absolutely. Thank you. That would be wonderful. All right. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hope you'll come on sometime soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So whew, I tell you, this Catholic school issue, the religious charter schools, this is a tricky one. It's really got the school choice movement split. It does. It does. It does. Where, where are you coming down? Well, look, uh, like I you know, said with Kathleen, I mean, at the end of the day, this is up to the courts, right? I mean, it's this is maybe not a, a policy preference kind of thing. You know, I think it's pretty likely that the Supreme Court's going to declare 
charter schools to be uh, private schools in some states and therefore say that those states can't uh, keep religious entities from running religious charter schools. But we'll see. You know, I've really been all over the map on this one, but I, I am nervous. I think that could certainly hurt charter schools in blue states. And I'm not sure we need it in red states, given how uh, private school choice programs are going gangbusters. Right, right. No, it's uh, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm equally split. You, depending on the day you ask me, you know, because generally I'm for religious freedom, but then it can kind of come back and have these unanticipated consequences in terms of our our options. So I get it. Yep. Yep. All right. So turning the page on that one, let's talk research. What do you got for us this week? Uh, We have a new study in the AEFP journal by some UVA researchers dives into the socioeconomic disparities in earnings uh, between students who attend community colleges. So um, I just got interested in this one because the motivation, there seems to be like a, a tension, obviously, between these earlier findings that show that, you know, labor market outcomes are, are generally improved for low income students when they have these post-secondary credentials. But at the same time, you've got work by Raj Chetty and, and colleagues that shows that this intergenerational mobility of students attending college continues to show significant differences in mid-career earnings for students from these low and higher income families. So this project uh, tries to dig into that. It's asking essentially whether these disparities might have more to do with differential sorting into colleges and majors, or maybe with barriers uh, that lower SES students might uh, encounter during this college to career transition um, knowledge of a lack of knowledge or supports about how to navigate, um, you know, getting a new job, similar to how we talk about the the help that low income students also often need to get through the uh, college application process. All right, so let, just to go off here. So it, the basic the Chetty finding is that getting a post secondary credential is good, but kids coming from more affluent families tend to go on and earn more money than kids from poor families do, uh, even if they get the same credential. And the question is, what's going on there, right? Is it something about the majoring different majors or different kinds of institutions or something about the labor market? Okay. Or something else. It's it's trying to get at mechanisms, but unfortunately, it's going to be kind of hard. <laughs> and I'll get to that. Um, their data captures the full universe of students who've ever enrolled in a Virginia community college between 2000 and 2020, but they drill down into the graduates from 2007, eight through 15, 16. So they steer clear of of COVID. Uh, They restrict their sample to those who graduated from a program of study since they want to be able to look at labor market entry among graduates. So they don't want kids that are just kind of took a course or two. And they also limit the sample to uh, graduates with an associates of applied science degree since those are terminal terminal degrees intended to prepare students for direct entry into the workforce as a pair compared, uh, compared to other types of programs, which are intended to convey credits to four-year colleges. Furthermore, then they target the top 20 AAS programs, which includes 81% of all AAS graduates. And they're mainly looking at labor market measures three years out from their graduating They have demographic and high school information, as well as community college course taking and GPA data, college data from the National Student Clearinghouse linked to employer and earnings data from the state. Uh, We always want to know how they measure income. And low SES here is federal Pell Grant receipt. 
widely used as a proxy for student SES since the program focuses on supporting low-income students with need-based grants. Uh, the average income, just for, for curiosity's sake, the average income of Pell-eligible students is 47000 annually, while it's 110000 for Pell-ineligible students. Finally, their average uh, on the method side, their analytical model essentially compares outcomes of low and high SES students within the same college and therefore the same geographic labor market, within the same program, graduating at the same time after controlling for a slew of individual and background characteristics, including pre-enrollment employment, during enrollment behavior, uh, like GPA, remedial course taking, prior degree attainment, length of time enrolled, <laughs> and a bunch of other controls on observables. Okay. But, but but still, but but to be clear on this SCS front, it's just income. That's right. It's kind of akin to free reduced price lunch, although without some of the newer problems with the free lunch indicator. So we can trust this that these kids are. Pell eligible, they're made, their families are making, you know, less than 40 something. 47,000. Gotcha. All right. Conditional on being employed, lower SES grads earn nearly $500 a quarter less than their higher SES peers one year after graduation relative to a high SES graduate's average income of about $10,850 a quarter. Okay, so we can add that up. Uh, the magnitude of this gap persists for at least three years after graduation, but by year seven, it's decreased to be about 200 less a quarter. Uh, they also find that lower income graduates experience less employment stability, and that's defined as having eight consecutive quarters of employment at any point in the 12 quarters after graduation. They're also 7% less likely to earn a living wage, again, based on whether they're a Pell non-recipients have a 65% likelihood of earning a living wage. Finally, I, I like this part. They look at nursing programs in particular, because we know that nursing programs consistently get high returns, and they find that these employment and earnings disparities that I just noted are essentially non-existent for the nursing graduates. Finally, they don't see significant differences by race or gender between Pell Grant recipients and non-Pell Grant recipients. And then finally, they try to dig into potential mechanisms. I keep telling you, like, every empirical paper lately is doing this, and they didn't used to. But, you know, you can see how they, they struggle with it. So they can rule out that the differences may be due to lower-income students earning less because they take longer to get their first job. They can rule out it's because they work at smaller or bigger organizations. They can rule out that they're experiencing more wage stagnation, and they can rule out that they hold more or fewer jobs. But they're not able to look at other possibilities like number of hours worked, positions held, number of job applications completed, or lack of supports in the post-graduation job search, like networking, those kind of things. And they don't have a lot of good data on the quality of the high school experience, which may also play a role. Oof. Interesting. Well, hey, uh, like you said, sounds like a valiant effort to try to get. <laughs> I mean, at least we know it's it's not just the sorting. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to determine in my head, like if these differences are are big. I mean, sounds like what a, these people were went out, 
they, they were making what 40 something thousand dollars a year in the first year and the high SES people were making $2,000 more. I mean, that's not nothing, but it's, I don't know, it strikes me as relatively small. I mean, so, so here's my, my question is, you know, when we're only looking at income as, as the marker of socioeconomic status, and it's, it's a dichotomy, you're either in or out, right? So you're not capturing, I mean, these could be very big differences. You're talking about could be people who are quite poor, you know, $25,000 a year family or quite affluent, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, there's a lot more that goes into sort of socioeconomic status than just uh, than just income. I mean, that that's behind those numbers, right? I mean, and and I think the story in America is that even you know when upward mobility is working really well, you know, it still takes more than one generation for people to catch up, right? I mean, I don't know. I think about my own ancestors, Italian American immigrants. It didn't happen in one generation, but it happened over time. So. You know, that's not too surprising. And and of course, you know, are you first in the generation to go to college? You know, what's your social network like when you're. Yeah, I think they did actually control for that, though. The first generation to go to college. All right. Anyway, so given all of that, given that these could be some pretty big differences uh, in terms of income and life background. I don't know. These differences don't sound huge to me. Am am I being overly uh, rosy? I don't think it was a huge difference either, Mike. I mean, you know, that's why I was like, huh, well, when you add it up, right, it amounts to $2,000. And you do see it, you know, kind of by year seven, you see a decrease. So it does. And I I do believe it decreased linearly, linearly (laughs) across years. So, yeah, it wasn't terrible, terrible news. I'm with you. And and you're right. it's, It's really a proxy for. Um, low income. It's it's not, you know, I know that we've talked about before on the podcast, all the things that can, you know, feasibly uh, be packaged into an SES metric. And uh, and usually it's it's not enough packaged in there that, that we want to see. And then the nursing thing is interesting. I mean, to me, that makes sense in that, you know, if all those people are staying in their local area, there's probably a handful of major medical centers, and they probably have very clear, you know, guidelines on what you pay, right? If you've got this credential, this is what the starting salary is. That's right. So in that kind of system, yeah. And you got a clear market, right, for those and a clear demand for, for nursing. So it's it's not hard to figure out that one. Yep. All right. Well, good stuff, Amber. I, look, I think this is super cool that we can, uh, you know, anytime we can look at this interaction between education and earnings, which is now becoming more and more common, I, I love it so much further than we used to be able to do. Yes, indeed. All right. Good. All right. Well, thank you, Amber. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.